Good morning. Everyone ha- uh, kind of fat and happy today? <laughs> Got your eggs or sausage, pancakes, bananas in some cases? Not much fruit, right? More carbohydrates than anything. <laughs> Good. Uh, well, a combination of the, uh, the breakfast and the rain. Uh, hopefully we can uh, stay awake for the next little bit together. Um, we are uh, heading into a new series today. This is the, the first Sunday that we're doing a brand new series, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew uh, this morning and for the next eight weeks. Uh, we're going to be specifically in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, um, sometimes uh, referred to as the Beatitudes. It's on page uh, 677 in the Bibles that we have here uh, under the seats. If you want to grab one of those and look through it, you're welcome to do that. And uh, what we're going to be doing over the next eight weeks is that we're essentially going to be slowing down to look at just one line from each of these Beatitudes. Um, And the Beatitudes are one of Jesus' most famous uh, teachings. They're kind of his introduction to what it looks like to participate in his kingdom um, as he's coming to kind of rule and reign on the earth and call people to himself. This is what life with him uh, is supposed to look like. And uh, here's the, the essence of what we're driving at. What we're going to see as Jesus begins to teach is that the priorities and the values of his kingdom are completely upside down to the priorities and the values of this world. I mean, they couldn't be further from the prevailing dominant worldview of the world around us. They're completely upside down. And so we're, we're calling this series Upside Down Prosperity. And you'll see why we're going to use the word prosperity in a few minutes. But it's this upside down nature to what Jesus is doing. He's turning what it looks like to, to, to be part of his world on its head. It's backwards from the way that we often think. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to read through the whole thing just to get familiar with it again or re-familiarize ourselves with it. But we're going to specifically dive into verse 3, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. So this is what it says in Matthew 5, 1 to 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began, began to teach them. He said... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the section, and we're going to go through it piece by piece over the next eight weeks, as I said. But the first thing I want to just uh, remind us of, if you're new to this section, if this is the first time that you've read it or if it's been a long time, is that uh, Matthew is being incredibly intentional about something. Matthew is the author of this gospel. This this letter, this account of Jesus' life was distributed around the churches. And specifically, it was distributed among kind of uh, Jewish ethnic churches. People who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ predominantly from a Jewish background. And if you've read through the first four chapters of Matthew up until this point, there's something that Matthew does not want you to miss. And that is that Jesus is a king. He's not just a savior. He's not just God in the flesh, though he is both of those things. But he's a king. And Jesus, as a king, is coming in to set up a new kingdom. 
He's inaugurating a new way of life that's lived out underneath His rule. And Jesus' kingdom is coming to replace, in a sense, the kingdom of Israel that began officially under the, the, the leadership of Moses. If you remember the history of Israel, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. I'm going to give you children. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And, and I'm, I'm going to make a new nation out of you. And then through his children, that begins to happen. And then they go into slavery and they become very numerous in the nation of, is, of Egypt. And then God ransoms them out. He gets them out of slavery and he uses a man named Moses to do it. And Moses leads them through the wilderness and leads them back to their homeland to begin this new nation. And, and what Jesus is, is doing and what Matthew doesn't want us to, to miss is that Jesus is coming in a sense to be the new Moses. In fact, if you look through the first four chapters of Matthew and you compare it to the life of Moses, you start to see something really interesting. Um, because both Moses and Jesus have incredible parallels. Both have uh, dreams that are connected to their births. Both are spared from mass slaughter as children. Both uh, flee from their land and then they return to their land when God says it's time. Both endure a season of temptation in the wilderness. Both fast for 40 days and both pass through the Jordan River. And now we get to chapter 5 and we see what is Jesus doing? He's teaching from where? Did you pick that up? Is it, from a, is it from the sea? Is it in the city? Is it in a valley? What's left? A forest. <laughs> With, it's from a mountain. Now, if you're the Jewish audience reading this account... And you're going, that sounds like Moses, that sounds like Moses, that sounds like Moses, that sounds like Moses. And now Jesus is a new leader of a new nation because he's talking in kingdom language, says from a mountaintop all of these things. You're thinking to yourself, this is a new Sinai. Mount Sinai originally was the place where God gave the law to Moses and Moses gave it to the people and he said, this is what life is going to look like. Underneath the reign of God, this is what it means to be his free people. And then Jesus comes along and Matthew essentially says, here's now Jesus on a mountaintop delivering the new law of God. I mean, he, could, I mean, he couldn't put it in flashing bold lights more to say Jesus is the true and better Moses who has now come to lead his people out of slavery. He is the new leader of a new nation. And just as Moses brought the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, which is supposed to be a picture of what it looked like to live as free people underneath God as king, Jesus is now bringing a new description of what it means to live as God's free people. He's bringing a new reign into the world. And he's saying this is how it's going to look. And particularly over the next eight weeks, what we're going to talk about is here's who's included. Here's who gets an invitation to this new nation. These are the prerequisites of what it means to be a citizen and what I'm doing in the world. See, you, you thought a relationship with Jesus was just about you being forgiven of your sin and then going to heaven when you died. Jesus has so much more in mind for you and me. He, he wants to include us in a new reign that begins today. And the the... the the invitation comes through the word blessed. It's the word that he uses to describe who's on the guest list. Because he says, blessed are these people, and blessed are these people, and blessed are these people. And what he means by that is, here's who it is, who's included, and here's who's included, and here's who's included. Now, the, the word blessing in Greek um, can take a number of different connotations and the word blessing um, has gotten skewed, let's say. Uh, we, we don't have a really good idea, I don't think, of, of kind of what that word encapsulates and what it means. It, it could have a number of different meanings, everything from happy 
to well-off, to successful, to prosperous. And now you kind of see what we're driving at, upside-down prosperity. But, but here's what you need to know about uh, the word blessing. Jesus is not saying, if you do these things, you, I will bless you. Right? He, he's not saying to us, which is often the way that we think about a relationship with God, if I... If I'm religious enough, if I do enough, if I'm good enough, if I try enough, then God will bless me. If I'm this, then I get blessed. There's a big problem with that way of thinking. And the first problem is God doesn't work that way. In fact, he's never worked that way. God is not waiting for you and me to get our act together in order for him to bless us. He blesses us, he acts, he initiates, he sends, he saves, and then we respond to this activity. He goes first and we follow after him. In other words, he, he isn't waiting for you to clean your life up, to get your act together so that he'll accept you, so that he'll love you. He accepts you and he loves you on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. He makes you acceptable in Christ before you even knew that you need Him. And then once you realize what He's done for you, you respond with love. Do you see how that works? He goes first, we follow. That's one problem with the way that we often think of the word blessing, but the other problem is is even bigger. And that is, did you look at the list? Do you see the kind of people that are included and called blessed? Did they seem like people that are prospering to you? <laughs> that have everything going well for them? The meek, the mourning, the persecuted, the poor? I, I, I think, Jesus, I think you have the wrong list here. <laughs> you, you can't be talking about this group of people because obviously they're not the ones who are blessed. And the reason that we think that way is the same the same thing is going on in our hearts as was going on in Jesus' day. Because in Jesus' day is the same thing as today. It's the rich who are blessed. It's the healthy that are blessed. It's the one who have numerous children that are the recipients of blessing. The people that live comfortable lives that are considered successful. And we think that's prosperity too, don't we? And here's why I know that, because we want the same things. In fact, think about the last time you used the word blessed or thought about it. Was it not connected with good things happening to you? And I've just been blessed with great health. I was blessed with a job. I was, man, I went on a two week vacation. What a blessing. I mean, Children are a blessing. Now, we often say that when we want to wring their neck and we're trying to remind ourselves like, <laughs> that we shouldn't strangle our kids, that they're a blessing from God. But we go, they're such a blessing. You, know? <laughs> you associate the word with good things happening to you. And you associate the word with good things happening to other people, which is why you want the blessings that other people have, which is why you compare your life to other people. You look at your neighbor who has a bigger house than you, and you go, wow, I wish I had another bathroom like they do. I wish I had another bedroom like they do. I wish I had a patio like them. I wish I had a car like them. I wish I had their health. I wish I had their kids. I wish I had their life. The reason you're doing that is because you're seeking after the world's definition of success. And here's what Jesus is telling you. The people that are truly blessed, the people that are really successful, really prosperous in this world, in other words, the people that are nearest to Jesus' kingdom on earth, doesn't that sound like something we should want if you're a believer in Jesus? The people that are nearest to that are the people that look the opposite of the world's definition of success. The people that don't have it together. The people that you would never covet. The people that you would never look across the street and go, I want what they have. 
You would never say that about the people that are included in Jesus' guest list. And at the very heart of his invitation to be a success in God's eyes, the very starting point of it is blessed or prosperous are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, you you want to be really prosperous? You want to experience all that God intends for you? you? Do you want life as he created it for you to be? It does not start with the abundance of your things. It does not start with the abundance of your good works. It does not start with the abundance of your religious activity for God. It starts with bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy. That is the only way to receive. Why? Because when you come as a bankrupt person, you know you're in need. The only way you're going to be willing to receive a gift is if you know you don't already have that gift and you cannot earn it. And that's the first step. You acknowledge your need. You acknowledge it to yourself, to God, to others. I mean, think about what it means to, to be poor. Some of you know poverty firsthand and some of you have seen poverty firsthand. Some, but if you've ever seen abject poverty, utter poverty, less than $2 a day, material poverty, then you will know that what it means to be poor is to be in a situation that you cannot resolve yourself. You have no ability. You might be able to improve your poverty, but you cannot remove your poverty. Something greater than you has to act into your situation in order to improve things, in order to revolutionize them and turn them upside down. See, this is, when Jesus says you have to be poor in spirit, this is the opposite of the way that we think. It's the opposite of the way that our culture thinks. Because the motto of our culture is, if it's broke, we can fix it, right? If your problem is money, get a job. If your problem is health, start working out and eat better. If your problem is psychological, start doing yoga and think happy thoughts and get my self-help book. If your problem is stress, take a vacation. We're a self-help society. In fact, we look down our noses at people that can't get themselves out of their own situation. We say to ourselves, gosh, I wish they'd just get it together. Don't they know our economy has improved dramatically and that there are jobs out there just waiting to be filled? Now here's the truth, though. As we dig into each of Jesus' statements over the next eight weeks, if you're paying attention to each of the things that Jesus calls us to and the kind of life that he's asking of us and what it means to participate in this kingdom, you will not be able to say, I'll just try harder. You, You won't be able to do it. You'll be led to the end of yourself. And if you're being honest with yourself, as we go through these things, you're going to say to yourself, I am poor. I'm bankrupt. I I, I don't know where to go. When you hear, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you're honest, you'll say, most days I don't. I don't want that kind of life. When you hear, blessed are the pure in heart, you'll say, but I'm not. My heart is full of unclean things. When you hear, blessed are the peacemakers who reconcile and even love their enemies, you'll say, I can't. And that's good news. That's where we begin. With the admonition that I don't, I'm not, I can't, I haven't. I'm in need. Especially, I mean, 
Just look a little further in the chapter of Matthew 5, and Matthew says this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody want to raise your hand and say, I'm going to try that one this week? Let me know how it goes. So oftentimes, when it comes to our relationship with God, we hear the commands of God and we go, yeah, I'll try, God. I'm doing my best. But what we really need to say, what it means to be poor in spirit, is to say, I can't. I'm not good enough. See, so many of us have been discipled by our culture, which says to us to be in need and, and to show that need to other people is one of the greatest sins that you could possibly commit. To actually, like, talk about the fact that you're needy, to reveal your brokenness to other people, to reveal the areas where you've sinned against other people, why in the world would we do anything so stupid? I mean, there's a reason that most people don't know their neighbors real well and have a very, very small group of friends in whom they trust. It's because their front doors look a lot better than the contents of their heart. As you're looking across the street to covet the things that your neighbor had, thinking that they're more blessed than you, you're forgetting about what's not just inside their home, but what's inside their heart. And that's the place of true blessing and true cursing. And most people are living under the weight of a curse. See, Jesus says this this kind of life of holding it in and bearing it down and not acknowledging our brokenness is the opposite of prosperity. And I'm convinced that we already know that. Deep down in your heart, you already know the truthfulness of what Jesus is talking about because to keep up that kind of life is exhausting. It's exhausting, isn't it? To have to manage your self-perception with everyone that's around you, your boss and your coworkers and your friends and your parents and your kids, to try to pretend like you're okay and everything's okay, doesn't that weigh you down? It sure weighs me down. A week of that and I'm done. I'm checked out. Please know you don't have to keep it up anymore. You can be free. In fact, Jesus wants to meet you in the midst of your poverty and be what you're not so that you don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to manage people's perceptions anymore. The pressure is off of you. But in order to receive that freedom, you need to be honest about your neediness because only empty vessels can be filled. I'm, in fact, the truth is, I'm convinced that if you don't find Jesus incredibly beautiful and attractive and life-giving, if you, at the thought of him, don't melt, like if your heart doesn't melt with joy and thankfulness, that it may actually be due to the fact that you don't see your need for him yet. You think you have things handled. Or, here's more often, this is what I do. Or it may be that you really only want Jesus to come in and help you out with the parts of your life that seem unmanageable. Like, I've got 90% of it together, but I can't get a job. And so I'll pray about that one aspect of my life, and I'll present that aspect to him because I want his help, I want his, his intervention in that aspect, and so I'll hand that part over to him because I can't do anything. But the rest of it, Jesus, I've, I've got it together. Please, please no, that's never going to work. And here's the reason why. Because you're not spiritually middle class. You're spiritually poor. And if you tell yourself you're spiritually middle class and all you need is a life coach to help you in the areas that are unmanageable, you will continue to be perplexed by what Jesus offers you. Jesus is not a life coach that comes to help you in the parts of your life that you can't seem to get a handle on. You don't bring him all of the good and then go, oh, by the way, Jesus, I've got this little bit of bad, this little bit of baggage, can you help me with that? He says, no, you come with your nothingness. Come with your bankruptcy. Come with your poverty. Come 
in need of being cleansed, and I will do the cleaning. I will make you new. In fact, that's the only place he meets you because it's the poor in spirit who receive the invitation because theirs is the kingdom. There's a great picture of this in 2 Corinthians 8-9. Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. See, there's only one rich man who ever lived, and that was Jesus Christ. Rich in every way that counts. Rich in relationship with God. Rich in the the way that he lived a perfect life out before other people. Rich in his love and his generosity towards everyone he came in contact with. He was rich. And what did he do on the cross? He gave all of his riches away. You want a great picture of what your poverty looks like? You look at Jesus on the cross. No wealth, no home, no health. Nothing but nails and thorns and nakedness and shame. That's the condition that we come before God. Now the great news of the gospel is that God does not leave you there. When you come that way, when you acknowledge that that's your condition, and you come before the cross, you see Jesus in the condition that you deserve to be in, and you realize that everything that he had has now been given up, and not just given up generally for the world, but given up specifically for you. That all the ways that we fail to live out this life that God intended have been thrust upon the one that didn't deserve to receive them and in return we get all of his riches. Isn't that amazing? That's the exchange that happened on the cross. And then he rises from the grave after three days so that he could come back to us as forgiven, as cleansed, and say to us what he said in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and they will find pasture. They're going to find my provision for their life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Your translation may say, and have life abundant. So how do you know that you're prosperous? How do you know that you're a success in God's eyes? The answer is, you know that you're needy. You know that that cross was for you. You know that that was your condition. You know that you can't do anything to make yourself better or more perfect in God's eyes. And you know at the same time that Jesus is sufficient for that need, that only He can save you, only He is the gate to life, only in Him is life found to the full. Amen? That's the gospel. Now here's the thing. It's really easy for us to say that we understand that. Isn't it? I mean, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you've been around for any point, any time at all, you realize the truth of the words that I just said. Yes, that's intellectually true. I understand that. But what I've found in my own heart, and I've found this in the lives of the people that I've had a chance to talk with over time, is that even the people that know that to the, to the nth degree, people that have been to seminary and studied the doctrine of grace. I mean, I, I went to seminary. It cost me $30,000 to go to seminary. And four plus years of my life. And yet I still struggle with bringing the belief of what I've been taught in a classroom from my head to my heart. This is a problem for everyone. We can say that we know it, but we need a growing awareness of it in our heart. And here's how you get the the growing awareness of it in your heart. You begin to realize all the ways that your heart tries to find life through your own strength instead of his. 
how you try to build up your spiritual resume now that you've been a believer. How you, try, how you began to tr- by trusting in God and relying on Him, but now you, you start to rely on yourself because now you have a little bit more experience and a little bit more understanding. And the more that grows in your mind, the less your heart relies, the less it's dependent. One of the ways that I've grown to understand that, just where I take my dependency, um, happens when I'm under stress. That's a big time for me. It's like flashing lights now to realize there is danger here. I'm relying on myself. Because one of the ways that I handle stress is through physical and mental detachment. Um... It doesn't matter if it's stress at work, stress at home, stress with finances. My default response when I am presented with my own needs in a time of stress is to detach. Now, here's the thing. Times of detachment are often a good thing, right? How many of you took vacations this summer? You didn't have to travel, but just kind of receded from from work and from life, spent time with family, spent time with God. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to detach and to get away. Jesus did this regularly. One of my um, favorite ways to do that is I have a small sailboat, and one of the things I most love to do is to go out on the water sailing with my family. And we have a blast together. It's good for me. It's good for our family to have days when we get away like that. And one of the things I love about that is that you feel like you're a million miles away, even though you're just 30 minutes away. Now, here's where it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem when physically I cannot detach from my situation, and so mentally I detach. And where do I go? My mind goes sailing away. <laughs> and I, and what do I, I'm daydreaming about being detached on my boat, getting away with my family or by myself. That's where my mind then drifts to, to find refuge from my stress. And what am I doing? I'm in a moment of need. I need comfort. I need to know that things are going to work out. I need to know that God has resources available to me that I don't have to overcome my situation or to endure it patiently as He gives me strength to do so. I have that need, but rather than bringing Jesus into my need because I'm spiritually poor, rather than detaching myself in Him so that He can re-energize me for the task at hand, I run from my need instead. The problem in my heart is it's not my circumstances and your problem isn't your circumstances either. The problem is not our feeling of inadequacy, although we often blame it on that. The true problem is that our hearts want to run to something other than the one that can provide help to meet the deficit of what we're facing. How do you do it? Do you have a growing awareness of, of the, the methods that your heart goes to to manage your need? Because every day, you and I are presented with a choice of which kingdom we're going to live in. We have to ask the question, am I going to live in the kingdom of this world? Am I going to rely on my own strengths and my own methods to handle the things that I have in my day? Or am I going to live in Jesus' kingdom and receive everything from Him? You are presented with that question each and every single day of your life. So when you're sad, will you cast your cares on Him? When you're full of joy, will you give praises to Him? When you feel lonely, will you find your intimacy in Him? When you feel angry, will you look to Him for for justice and for resolution? And will you patiently wait on Him? When you feel stress, will you depend on Him and seek Him as your fortress? That's the question again and again and again. The spiritually poor 
understand that whenever they have a need, it's like they have two doors in front of them. There is the door of self-sufficiency, which the Bible calls your flesh. You can go your own way, which is the essence of living in your own kingdom, where you're in charge and you're left to your own devices and your own strength to do the task. Or, that's door number one, or door number two is the door of dependency. It's, the, it's what the Bible calls walking in the Spirit, where you walk in step with what God is doing and you, you, you pause to listen to what He wants to tell you and you rely on what He wants to do in you. And over and over and over again, the Bible says that behind door number one is nothing but disappointment and discouragement and ultimately death. And behind door number two is joy and prosperity and life abundant. Please know this. When you're thinking about the circumstances which trigger your needs, please know that because spiritual poverty is a prerequisite for God's kingdom, one of the things that God is committed to in your life, it's going to sound uncomfortable, is putting you in situations that actually reveal your need for him. Doesn't that seem cruel to you at first glance? That God would drop you into the middle of situations where you go, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to have to talk to that person. I don't want to have to look at my bank account. I don't, I don't want to have to be presented with this. Why would he do that to you? The answer is because he loves you. <laughs> because he wants to break the cycle of discouragement and disappointment and death that's behind the door of self-sufficiency. He wants to do away with those things. Because he knows that he's the one that you need in order to find life. In my life, I'm sure it's the same in your life, that there, there are days or moments or seasons when I'm put into a situation where I have a clear choice. I'm either going to rely on him or I'm going to revert back to depending on myself. You know one of the ways that God does that most often? It's going to seem counterintuitive is to put you into a community of people. Did you know that? God uses a community like this to reveal your need for him. Doesn't that seem backwards? We just spent 16 weeks talking about what it means to be the church in in Ephesians. And and one of the things that we said again and again and again was that God's um, intention for the church was to be a community that shows what he's like, right? Right? to show off, to display His glory in the way that we love one another and love people that are far from Him. Now, anybody try that? (laughs) I know many of you have. I'm, I'm joking. But what happens when you try that? To love the people that are in this room and love people that don't yet know Him. Is it easy or is it hard? Both, right? There are days that are really hard. Days that are really frustrating. People that some some days can get really on your nerves. It happens. I'm sorry. Let's be honest. Let's acknowledge our need, right? It's hard because community reveals our poverty. It's really easy to feel like you're a super loving person when you're not called to love people that are difficult to love. I remember thinking that I was a really loving person and then God brought one of my neighbors into my life that was really difficult to love and I remember night after night after he would go home spending dinner with us, Manny and I would look at each other and we'd go, I can't believe, like, let's not have him over ever again. That was tough. That was hard. And then we do it again and we do it again and we do it again and it got easier. But it, we, we felt like really loving people until there was, we were presented with someone to love. We feel like we might be really patient people until someone's there getting on your nerves. You think you're a really forgiving person until there's someone there who offends you. We seem really good in isolation. Community shows our need. And God is all about community because God is a three-in-one. 
So at the same time, we need to understand that to be a community means we show off God's glory. At the same time, we realize that God uses community to shape us to look more like him, to reveal the ways that we don't, to reveal the ways that that we are selfish and we are self-centered and we want our own way. And we want to love ourselves above our neighbor. Over and over again, God uses people to, to shoot your needs up to the surface. And that's a good thing. You might think it's very inconvenient, and it is for your agenda. But you need to know that it's good for you. Why? Because Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people that are in need and acknowledge their need. So the moment that you come to your senses about your poverty, the moment that you're presented with the inconvenience of other people that that are imposing their will above yours and you're angry at them because they've done that, That is the same moment as you acknowledge that need that you get the resources of Christ Jesus in heaven to meet your spiritual poverty. Isn't that amazing? You get it at the moment you need it. But do you want it? You have access to it. Are you acknowledging it? One of the interesting things about um, people that haven't eaten for a long time is that even when they're presented with food, they don't feel hungry enough to eat it. I'm talking like a really long period of time. And oftentimes what will happen is that people will put honey in their mouth and the taste of the honey will kickstart their metabolism so that they want the meal in front of them. Do you know what the Holy Spirit is? He's like honey on your tongue. And I, I trust even right now that He is giving you a taste of what life could be like so that you'll realize the meal that you're missing out on in Jesus. The spiritual banquet that's available to you in this moment right now and we don't realize that we're starving but I pray Holy Spirit that you would sweeten our tongue to what we're missing Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit He wants to give you what you don't have. I know that can be a very difficult concept to hear that you have a Heavenly Father that wants to be generous with you, especially if you've had earthly fathers that have been anything but. That can be a really challenging concept to see God and to receive Him that way, but you need to know that He is infatuated with you. He loves you and he is not poor. He's the most generous giver in the universe and he wants to give abundantly to you in your moment of greatest need. If you remember, well, we'll keep going. It's available to you, so you, it starts with acknowledging it. Now, the, the way that you begin to receive it, actually, after acknowledging that we're in need, is to confess our need. It's, it's through confession that we receive. It's through opening our mouth that, we, that our eyes are opened, not just to our need, but to his sufficiency to actually meet that need. And so when we confess with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Father has raised him from the dead, what does the scripture say? We will be saved. 
so often we think as Christians that that was just like a one-time transaction at the beginning of our life with him and that now we, that we don't need to confess anymore. That's false. We need to be people of constant confession because we're people in constant need. So we have to be people that say, God, thank you for showing me my need. God, I confess my lack of trust in you. When you're presented with your need tomorrow morning at work, when people are getting on your nerves or when you're low on patience or when you're low on energy, just pause for a moment and go, God, I'm, I'm in such need. Thank you for showing it to me. God, I lack trust in you. Please help me. God, I'm broken, but I know you can heal me. I, God, I'm sinful. I want my own way, but you forgive me. God, I'm, I'm lacking, but you're enough. The reason that confession is good for us is because it's the opposite of what we tend to do with our needs, which is just to bury them. We just say, well, I'm tired, but I'll get through. You know, I'm frustrated, but I'll get over it. Be careful of your self-talk. It's either leading you to death or leading you to life. See, confession is bringing your brokenness to the surface. And yet, here's what you're saying to yourself. I know it's good for me, but it's going to be painful. If, if I acknowledge it and I confess it, I'm going to be bringing up some deep things. I don't know if I want to go there. I mean, that just sounds too painful, too hard for me to do. Now, I don't want to gloss over it. Yes, it will be painful. But so is surgery to remove a, ter- a tumor. Do you want to live with it the rest of your life or do you want it removed and gone? You can't pretend it's not there. It never goes away. And you, it, it, all you'll get is death in return. So you, you know you're really prosperous when you can say to God, you can say to others, you can say to yourself, here's the ways that I'm broken, here's my sin, and here's where I need a Savior, and Jesus is enough. He's going to meet me there. So poor in spirit is to acknowledge our need. It's to confess our need. And last, it's to cast our need. It's to, it's to throw our need onto the one that can do something about it. I love First Peter 5, verse 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know what that sounds like in practice? It sounds like saying, I don't have the resources to deal with this, but you do. For me, particularly, when I'm in a season of of high stress, it's, it's realizing that God doesn't want me to go inward with my need and to think about all the things that I can do to manage my own stress. He wants me to go upward with that need, to actually humble myself and go, God, I can't manage this but you can. And you've shown that you can. You've shown that the world was created in six days at the power of your word and that you were able to rest on the seventh day. So now I can rest in your finished work. That you sent your son to accomplish something before I was ever even born. And that you drew me into the knowledge that I need Jesus in the first place. So, and you took care of that need before I even existed. How much more will you care for my needs today? I can rest in you. You rose from the dead on the third day. You ascended into heaven. And now you said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make your life about my agenda. And I'll give you the power to do it because I'm going to be with you every day to do it. So I can, I can rest in what you have done. I can rest in what you will do. I can rest in what you are doing. It's all about your power and not mine. You know what happens the, the more that I do that? The more I confess to him, what we talked about last week, that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, but if we, he's the vine and we're the branches and we're connected to him, he'll live his life out through me. 
It means I get reconnected to the vine. The more I acknowledge, the more I confess, the more I cast, the more connected I get to the source of life. The more I see that He's changing me and He's filling me and He's enabling me to live a new life. I get the vine's resources living themselves out through the branch again. And all of a sudden, fruit starts to happen that wasn't there before. And so in the midst of difficult choices, I get joy. In the midst of uncertain circumstances, I get peace. In the midst of prolonged waiting, I get patience. None of those were in my tree before Jesus. And the more I cast them on him, the more I find that fruit growing in my tree, the more prosperous I'm becoming. Let's close by just asking us that those three questions. Are you acknowledging your need before Jesus? And what is that need? What's that need even right now? Write it down. We're going to pray in a moment. Matthew's going to lead us through a time of reflecting on this. But just if, it's, if God's bringing it to mind, write it down. What does it look like to confess your need? And are you doing that regularly? And when's the last time you've, you prayerfully cast your need on him? You humbled yourself and received what he has for you. He's a good dad who wants to give you good gifts. And it begins here. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge our need before you and ask for your help. Holy Spirit, put your finger on that area of our heart that wants to run to another source. Help us to be aware of the situations that trigger our poverty and how we want to squirm out from under it. God, we confess and we ask that you'd be present as we humble ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.